prayed and you want to go to children's worship, you are dismissed at this time. can go behind the gray curtain and find your teacher. The rest of us this morning, we're going to be uh, taking a look at the Gospel of John, this account of the life of Jesus. And, and last week we saw Jesus come in and, and He went right for the party. And we showed how He proclaimed in that moment, He demonstrated in that moment a life of purity, a, a life that culminated in a party, the kind of life you would think would make Him a really popular guy. But that's not exactly the life of Jesus. He wasn't always a popular guy. In fact, over the next several stories, we're going to find a Jesus that kind of rubs people the wrong way. A, a Jesus who, who, though he comes to bring life, but in order to bring life, he must show the people that the things they think bring life are dead ends. The things that they think bring them hope and joy and peace and security are indeed fool's gold. And so we get to start this morning uh, where the most clear place where Sunday school Jesus falls apart and it's the one where he picks up a whip and goes to town. Join with me in John chapter 2 starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold the pigeons he said, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. God, you are a God who consistently fails uh, to live up to what we think you ought to do in the world. Of course, that's not failing. You're succeeding. You're being a God who, by your very nature, pushes us and stretches us because you are making us into your image. You are making us into people who can receive and know the life of Christ. We pray this morning that as we look at this small little text from the life of Jesus, Lord, that our hearts would be stretched, that they could be filled with the love and grace of your life, your death, your resurrection, and your life which is to come. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a, a kid, when it got to this point uh, in the summer, right, uh, here at the very tail end of summer break, and things looked really dark and bleak in the world, uh, Grandma and Grandpa would come to save the day. They would take 
me, my brother, my sister, and, and our two cousins. And, and pretty much every year we would go spend a few days uh, on a vacation with Grandma and Grandpa. We would, um, these were not fine cultural experiences. These were pure go to Six Flags Amusement Park and spend three days just eating footlong uh, chili dogs, riding roller coasters, and riding more roller coasters, and eating a slushie, and then riding more roller coasters. It was meant and designed, the sole purpose was to have as much fun, to squeeze in as much joy into those last weeks of summer as possible. The problem was is that I was not at all convinced that roller coasters brought fun and enjoyment into life. In fact, and probably until I was like in fourth or fifth grade, right? I always looked at those roller coasters and the way they flipped you around and the way that people lost their lunch while they rode them, the, the, the uncontrollableness of them. And I was pretty confident that life was better off with my feet on the ground and the chili dog is still in my stomach, right? So this trip that's meant to be this bonding experience, this time of laughter and fun and shared experiences was experienced by me to be sitting in the blazing hot sun waiting for my brother and sister and cousins to get off the ride. And then they'd come off and they'd say, now let's do that one! And I'd sit there for another hour while they waited in line and rode the roller coaster and came off and then another roller coaster and I sat there and I sat there telling myself over and over again that this is the way that it needs to be that this is really what I want I don't want to be on the roller coaster with them that is not what is fun this is what I need to do I need to stay right here where I'm at we come to this text and we find uh, a temple that is quite clearly not the way it's supposed to be. But we see a group of, of administrators, the Jewish leadership, the establishment in the area, who were convinced that this system, the system that had uh, a temple filled with merchants and care, was the way that it had to be. They were convinced that, that it is only by preserving this temple that they uh, could carve out a Jewish way of life in the midst and right in the middle of the Roman Empire. They were quite certain that, that in holding on to finding the, the means and the funds and the support for this temple was the way that they could provide stability, keep their feet on the ground. To provide religious encouragement to the people to, to, to provide a context where they could live out their faith in a predictable, safe, and stable environment. And then comes a crazed man with a whip. A crazed man with a whip who in just a couple of verses turns their presuppositions upside down. Who comes to them and says, you have defeated the entire purpose. The sole purpose of this temple is that worshipers could meet with God, but there's not room for worshipers in the midst of the cattle and amidst the pigeons and amidst the currency exchange booths. In a moment, 
this well thought out plan for life and stability was turned on its head as Jesus comes in and says that's not where life comes from. I wonder if, as we gather here this morning, if we don't offer, all suffer from that same impulse. The impulse to defend institutions or establishments, political mechanisms that we think bring stability, we think bring certainty, we think put our feet on the ground that, that provide a way for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness when in fact those things are destroying the very life we hope for them to create. We think that life can be found in stability, but all too often the defense of our stability hurts people and causes us to miss. It causes us to, to not see. It causes us to gloss over the Jesus who brings and gives life. So I want us to take a look at this, this that our, our defense of our stability, one, hurts people, and two, causes us to miss the life giver. First, our desire for stability hurts people. Before I go here, though, I've got to back up a little bit because I'm pretty sure if these, uh, these priests or, or these, these Pharisees or the Sadducees or, or the elders would hear me characterizing them in this way, they would, they would have a few objections, right? They would be balking at how I've presented them. They would take a look at this system that was before them, the system um, of, of animal sellers and money changers, and they would say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is here to protect the temple. This is here to enable worship where, where the people could otherwise not worship. This is here to bring life to the community. Because you see, the Jews of the century, first century were pretty beat up people. A thousand years prior, they had uh, a king, David, and, and his son, Solomon, who built this gorgeous and elaborate temple, a temple that God blessed. And the glory of God resided in that place. And it was there that they, people, of, were able to go and to meet with God. But that temple was looted, destroyed, knocked to the ground by the Assyrians and, and Babylonians. The Jews then rebuilt, Zerubbabel led a, a small contingent of, of Israelites as they came back to their motherland and they built this uh, smaller, humble, but still a temple that they called their very own that, that stood as a beacon of hope and, and life and purity until a wave of Greeks came through desecrating it, sacrificing a, a pig on the altar making it undefiled and, and unclean. The Romans swept through, and, and yet it is here that, that we find the Israelites have somehow managed to, to secure a little bubble around themselves, a place where the Roman Empire was willing to look the other way of their worship. In fact, they allowed King Herod to, to take that little modest temple and to elaborate it, to expand it, to build its walls and its fortresses, to be a, a place where Jews could put their hope, they could put their security, they could put their life in the fact that they could once again gather together on the Passover celebration. 
the day when every Israelite man and woman was to gather at the temple to remember the acts of God. And so it is into this temple, this temple which had just a a few years prior been completed in its initial construction, that Jesus comes. You see, the Jews, though, were not the Jews of the old. They had a, a hint of life, but they had been scattered to the four winds. The Jews lived all over uh, the, the region, and, and so this festival, this feast, would bring men and women from all over the country, and they were meant to come and to bring a sacrifice to God. But given the distance that they needed to travel, bringing a a lamb with them would be nearly impossible. right? You could bring a lamb, but it was supposed to be spotless and blemished. And if you've traveled a couple hundred miles to get there, that lamb's not looking so pretty by the time you get there, right? So the religious establishment had devised a a plan, a way that, that these sojourners, these travelers from far and distant lands could come and there in Jerusalem they could procure the animals that they needed to bring God a sacrifice. There, in Jerusalem, they could take their foreign currency and exchange it for the, 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 te- the currency that the temple required for the temple tax. It was a, a system that was designed and implemented so that Jews from the farthest corners of the globe could come and worship, could come and participate in the festival that was meant for their good and for their life. And the cost, the cost of procuring and allowing for these Jews to have a place and a home and permanency and safety and stability was just that a a, a small portion of the Gentile courts would be taken out of commission. See, in the ancient temple there was different courts. The Jewish men could occupy one, the Jewish women could occupy another, and then there was a court for everyone else, the foreigners, the Gentiles. And it is in that outer court that these temple, that these uh, men and women set up their booths to sell their animals, to sh- exchange the money, and to, so you can see pretty, pretty obviously to the to the religious leaders of this community, they think it's just a small little corner. We're just moving out a few Gentile worshippers. It's just a few people who can no longer worship here. Isn't it worth it? But Jesus counts costs differently. Jesus comes in and, and, and he looks at this complex geopolitical historical uh, uh, arrangement that they have made to provide stability and care and comfort. And he looks at it and he says, there are pigeons pooping where there ought to be men praying. You've chosen a financial benefit. You've chosen a logistic, a logistical solution over the people who ought to be worshiping here today. You have come into the house of worship and you have said, no, 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 we don't need all of this for worship. They've prioritized their own plan. They've prioritized their own idea of what brings stability and security over what God desires. That men and women would find Him at the temple. 
we could talk about this principle, this idea, right? That, we, that we're prone to, to trade our ideas of what brings stability and to prioritize those things over and above the clear and, and consistent care of God, right? To, to follow our ideas and to pass that are clearly and obviously at odds with what God wants in the world, right? We could talk about in church how some of our theology is meant and, and has been fashioned in such a way that it, it pushes out others. We can look at, at the way that uh, churches have historically favored the, the wealthy donors. Right, those people who can provide a little bit extra and make sure that this place stays open. Right, You know in the old days they used to, to rent pews pew boxes, they would sell them or, or rent them at different times of history because they, the church needed money, right? So what's locking out a few people have to do with providing the, the funds to keep the building open, right? We could look at the way that we treat certain kinds of sin with disdain and disgust and we treat others with a blind eye. But I think if we're to, to follow this text in its most natural modern day iteration, the place that most of us look for stability in our life, the place that most of us look uh, at the world and we think this is the way to, to make life work, to make the world work right, it is in our political system, right? When we think about what's wrong with the world, very many of us think of, of something in America revolving around a Republican-Democrat debate, right? We think of some way locally or, or nationally that we can fix what's broken in the world. And when I look out at this congregation, I, I know you all know to know that I'm looking at some of you who are, are passionately progressive in your political ideology. And some of you this morning are deeply conservative in your, uh, in your political ideology. And in a world that is complex and confusing, the geopolitical environments, the historical woes that we face, the, the economics, right, the, um, the logistics, the, the, the immense and difficult and complicated plans for the world, you have looked at that and you've said, look, this is as far as I understand it and, and the knowledge that's been given to me, this is how I think we can make the world a little bit better. This is how I think we can make our nation operate the way that it is supposed to be. Right? You've used your intellect, your experiences, your desire that things go well in the world to embrace a political ideology. It, in and of itself, is precisely what I think God would call us to do. I don't think the problem that came in this text is that the Jews wanted to accommodate for the folks who were traveling from a far way off. The problem is, is how far they were willing to follow their plan. The problem was is how zealously they would protect their idea when the reality was apparent. The temple existed for the sole purpose of meeting, of introducing, of combining, of bringing the people of God into the presence of God. And that was the one thing that they took away. 
It's not at all uncommon in our world for our political ideas, our, our great plans to manifest themselves in such a way that when they're taken to their fullest extent, they fail, right? The plan of politics, the plan of policy is that it brings life into the community, that it supports the ability uh, for, for people to live and to work with one another and for one another. And yet we come to moments in time when the people who are on our team have taken us to a place that is clearly wrong. It's been interesting over the last few weeks uh, to watch how Christians, right, kingdom ambassadors in the world have wrestled with these things. How do you respond when your thing, your thing, your ideology that brings stability, your ideology that's supposed to bring life hurts lives? A few weeks ago, uh, President Trump's uh, now famous tweets went out, right? A tweets in which he used a, a historical racial slur. There's all sorts of people who, who debate it and, and, and have argued for or against it, but, but at its heart, it was a racial slur. Go back to the countries that you came from. It's, a, it's the kind of thing that in no context uh, would we debate whether the meaning was uh, positive or negative except in partisan politics, right? If, it was a, if somebody from a different country, right, or if it was a business leader or if it was an actor or a musician who said that, we would get the point, right? If it was a YouTube video of a person angry in the grocery store, we would get the point. And so President Trump has taken this really stereotypical, this really kind of textbook racial slur, and he has hurled it into our public environment. And how do Christians respond? How ought Christians to respond? Most, I would guess, have not necessarily tried to argue that it was a, a kind thing to say. Most, I would argue, have not argued that this was uh, necessarily even an okay thing to say, right? Those who have tried to say it's okay, they, they changed, literally have changed the words that he spoke. But those who, who, for most of us who embrace a conservative ideology, we've reproached those words, this tangible, clear, and explicit way of bringing harm to people. And we've said, just keep your head down. It's part of the process. Politics are ugly. You just have to get past the fact that a few people will be hurt because the end result is this good life, this good system, this system that, that prioritizes uh, the judicial appointments that, if, if you're from that ideology, you believe are good and helpful and bring life to the community. That if you just hang with it, if you just grim and bear that a, a few people get pushed to the side, right, then, then the trade policy or the, uh, the legislation prior, legislative priorities, right, the budget priorities would be set the way you want them. And so you take a look at a system where is somebody is being deeply harmed and you make it far more complex than it is, right? If someone is attacking the lives of people, then you can't quite explain it away as being a system that brings life, can you? 
And so uh, Christians who, uh, when they see this, when they hear this, when they see that somebody on their team has betrayed their trust and the trust of their ideology, what we ought to see is a deep grief. All right, Not embarrassment, but grief. That harm is being introduced into the world. What we ought to see is, is Christians apologizing. Christians challenging. Christians uh, disassociating themselves if need be. Right? They say, I will not participate in that way. It doesn't mean that the policies are necessarily wrong. It doesn't mean the policies couldn't bring life. But the policies can't bring life at the expense of the lives of the people it's meant to protect. To my progressive friends. See, you thought I chose your side here, right? To my progressive friends, the question is, is going to come in the same way. How far are you willing to, to associate yourself with a team when the lives of people are at stake? Right? How will you respond or how are you responding as, as people from your camp, your leaders are, are maligning, are grossly distorting, are, are lumping all conservatives into one pile and, and saying that they are all terrible human beings? How do you respond when your person, your teammate, is attacking the dignity of life? How do you respond if, if and when your team regains power, right? And they try to rip a page from the moral majority handbook and try to legislate morality. Or they try to prosecute morality into existence when they attack people, because they are certain that their morals are correct. How will you speak, progressive friends, as you watch the drama that is currently playing out? Will you speak as a person who knows the temptation to side with security over the side of Christ? How will you speak with grace? Will you speak with compassion? Will you speak with love because there's lives of worshipers who are meant to know Christ who stand in the middle this is fun isn't it guys you didn't now you thought like coming to a passage about Jesus with a whip you didn't think this would be easy and feel good did you so we miss uh, the when we choose to protect Stability. When we choose to, to, to use our ideas of what is good for the world above and beyond what is clear and evidently good for some people, we miss, we miss the chance to love people. We harm people. We send people away, but we miss something else. And that is we miss the one who gives life. Jesus, when he comes into this temple, he makes a, a really just... Obvious, simple observation. You've kicked out worshipers so that you can make money. You've kicked out worshipers so that you can provide stability. It's an obvious rebuke, but it's one that, that the whole ensemble of priests and leaders had entirely missed. But they missed something else that day, too. You see in verse 18, when, when the Jews, and when John talks about the Jews, he's not 
it's not some anti-Semitic language. He's saying the Jewish leadership. This was uh, the term, that, the proper term he used for the leadership. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who do you think you are to bring this kind of a disruption? Who do you think you are to come as a one-man show and, to, and to, to deny that what we have established is good and for the benefit of the community? Who do you think you are? But they didn't recognize who they were standing in front of, did they? They missed it. But they shouldn't have. See, in verse 17, uh, his disciples, who likely as they approached the temple that day, had no better idea of what was coming than the priests did. But the disciples, upon looking at what Jesus did, something clicked in their brains and they saw in Jesus the righteous sufferer from Psalm 69. A psalm that, that talks about, uh, written by David. About how a love for God and a love for the things of God would lead him into a place of utter and complete danger. Where parties on every side, where his very brothers and sisters, where his closest allies would abandon him and they would look at him with scorn and disdain. That they would persecute him and try to run him off because he valued the people of God. The works of God in the world above and beyond any other affiliation. When the disciples saw Jesus storm as a one-man tornado into that temple, they saw a Messiah. One who knew the ways of God and one who cared enough to speak into it. So the, 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 the Jewish leadership should have already known who they were, were dealing with. They had already been given a sign of his authority. They had already been given a sign of his purpose. They had already heard what was obviously true. And yet they come to Jesus and they say, What sign do you show us for doing these things? If they had recognized who was in their midst, they would have been willing to burn the whole temple down. You notice how Jesus responds to them, uh, kind of like he, he responds to uh, the rich man, right? And he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, sell all your possessions. Give away the one thing you think brings life. To the Jewish leaders, they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And he says, destroy this temple. Destroy this temple. Destroy this land. A challenge, a direct assault on what they thought brought life and goodness and, and, and hope in their world. And, and instead, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. He challenges their very conception of what is good. Right, John goes on to explain to us that Jesus uh, was proclaiming to them uh, that the, the, the theological truth, that is, is that physical temple, this temple that they worked so hard to run and to operate and to safeguard from harm, Jesus was making that physical temple obsolete. You could burn down the temple because the temple wasn't needed anymore. You could burn down the temple because people had Jesus to connect with God. They could burn down the temple because what was ultimately important was that people were worshiping God. And worshiping God was, well, that was Jesus' territory. 
I think as we re- if we look at our lives, and as we think about uh, our, our, our prioritization, the willingness that we are to defend our team above and above beyond the, the interests of God, I, I kind of wonder if we hear the challenge there. Where Jesus says, take this temple, this thing you think is so important, and burn it down. I have a quote here from a, a pastor named John Piper. And I think it, 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 it could help us think of these things more clearly. And he's writing in particular about uh, politics, and particularly if he should be engaged more deeply in them. But what I think he offers to us is an example of what it would look like if we cared so much for the cause of Christ that we're willing to lose uh, uh, the American political system as we know it. John says, I'm 100 times more passionate about creating the kind of Christians and the kind of churches that stand with unshaken, faithful, biblical, countercultural, spiritual mindedness in a socialist America than I am in preventing a socialist America. I'm 100 times more passionate about creating Christians and churches that will be faithful, biblical, countercultural, and spiritually minded in socialist America in a Muslim America, in a communist America, than I am in preventing a Muslim America or a communist America. I want the help to help be the church to be the church, to be the radical outpost of the kingdom of Christ, no matter what kind of America it happens to be in, or any other people, people group or country in the world. You hear what he's saying? He's not saying, I... I want a socialist America. He's not saying uh, I want to, to destroy and, and to assail America as we know it. What he's saying, though, is that there is a clear differential of what matters at the end of the day. You see, you can burn the entire American government to the ground and you still find life in Christ. But if you choose to prioritize the American system of government over the cause of Christ in the world, you will miss the one who promises to give us life. The fact that our political biases are hiding us from the life of Christ are clear and evident, right? The fact that when I I just said political uh, discussion and and everyone in the room kind of tensed up a little bit, right? You tensed up because you you know that while you're in a room with with conservatives and progressives, it's not something we want to talk about, right? It's the kind of thing that leads us to arguments. In fact, I would venture to say that we kind of pride ourselves as a church as being a place where progressives and, and conservatives can worship together. But do we do that because we talk about it or because we don't talk about it? Because if we can't talk about it with the kind of life-giving function, right, the trademarks of the Christian life, if we can't disagree on politics with love, right, if we can't disagree on politics with joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, then maybe we've chosen politics over the way of Christ because the life of Christ is missing. If we can't engage our own ideas for the world and the way that it's being implemented in the world with grief and sorrow and repentance when it's due, then maybe our defensiveness is meant to hide us from the life of Christ rather than to lead us 
towards it. Your politics matter. Your public policy matters. Your life matters, but they can't bring you life. You are a person who God has placed in this time and this place. To engage in these discussions is a way that only a Christ follower can with the humility, with the sincerity, but with the truth of God's world live in your mind and alive in your heart. You are a person. A person who Jesus has called to, to defend his temple. To defend his notoriety. To defend his cause in the world. Even if it means forsaking the party that you have always identified with. Even if it means that at times you must speak out against. Even if at times it means that you must disown one of your own. Because the life of Christ is that much bigger. Jesus invites us to come to the temple, but he invites us to not come thinking that we can uh, make our own judgments about what brings stability and security. Instead, Jesus invites us to walk with him, to walk with the life giver into, at times, instability, at times, into a, a life that challenges what we think we know. And it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing, but it is only at times when our feet are off the ground. It's only at times when we can't tell which way the roller coaster has flipped us. We don't know which way is up at many more, but we know who we are with. Because God doesn't just lead us to life. We find life when we're with Him. And then when we're light and our feet are off the ground, when we're willing to follow him in humility and submission into our poly- political lives, that we'll discover the life that we've been missing all along. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who brings life. And just when we think we have it all figured out and we know the way that it ought to go, Lord, you bring into our life the challenge. You bring into our life a calling to follow you in the most difficult places, in the places that feel like we're giving our life away. It is there, Lord, that we find you. Be with us this morning, we pray. Challenge our assumptions, fill us with your humility, your grace, and Lord, your forgiveness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this next song together. <laughs>